Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to the Lynx Golf Podcast. I am your co-host, digital editor, Al Lunsford. Joined again by Joe Passoff. Joe and I uh, are on the heels of a nice little trip to see one another and play a very well-known course as part of our annual trip up to Wingfoot Golf Club. That, along with the the fact that here uh, in just a few days, I guess by the time this podcast airs, it'll be about a week or so uh, before the 2022 U.S. Amateur Championship is to be played at Ridgewood Country Club. Uh, so we are at the intersection of, in our own personal exploits and and what we're about to watch on television, a uh, A.W. Tillinghast takeover. Uh, so seems like the perfect time to, to talk about Tilly the Terror, who he is, his style, his best courses and a few that you can play as well. You know, you don't have to be an architecture buff to know the name A.W. Tillinghast in the game of golf. Joe, where do you start with Tilly? Who is he? Uh, maybe let's just, just go back to the beginning with A.W. Tillinghast and his background. Well, absolutely, Al. You know, uh, the name A.W. Tillinghast, and that's usually what he's referred by, uh, is now extremely well known uh, to folks who follow great golf courses and great championships. So uh, his actual name is Albert Warren Tillinghast, and uh, he came into life in uh, pretty good stead, born into some money, and you know, and and it's interesting because you you look at it now. And we go back a hundred years with this, more than a hundred years. And he's acknowledged as one of the five greatest golf course architects of all time. It's very seldom you see him mentioned as the best golf course architect of all time. It usually goes to Mackenzie or Donald Ross. Occasionally, folks across the pond like to favor H.S. Colt, Harry Colt. But um, Tillinghast generally shows up in the top three, definitely the top five. So, yeah, what is it about Tillinghast, you know, that that made him so renowned, uh, that, that, that gave him such a wealth of amazing courses? I mean, you know, in looking at that perspective, Donald Ross may have been more prolific, you know, designing 400 or so courses. Alistair McKenzie was better traveled. He went to South America. He went to Australia. But when you just look at consistency in design excellence alone among the Golden Age greats, Tillinghast takes a backseat to no one. That's just how strong each and every one of his golf courses, for the most part, was. What not many people know 
in looking at his thinking about his background, we remember Donald Ross was a really good player. Mackenzie um, wasn't so good. Tellingas was a marvelous golfer. And uh, he competed in three U.S. amateurs between 1905 and 1912, uh, finished 25th in the 1910 U.S. Open, played at Philadelphia Cricket Club, where he was a member. And, of course, 12 years later, designed them a brand new golf course at Philly Cricket Club, um, now known as the Wissahickon course. And, um, yeah, I mean... He was born to a prosperous family and got into golf, journeyed to St. Andrews in 1896 and got to know old Tom Morris and, and played with him, um, played the old course with him. So <clears throat> Tilly's, Tilly's background was as strong as just about anybody is, is in getting into this. And, uh, you know, terrific player, new St. Andrews. And came over here at a time he had some money, he had some time on his hands. And uh, starting in the late aughts and then getting into the early teens, began to shape the Tilly style and lay out some some golf courses. So he's got, you know, at least what from what we can understand, 265 courses that can lay claim to being something that Tillinghast had a hand in. And we can get more into that. Uh, they're not all direct designs. We'll, we'll talk about his exploits amid the, the Great Depression. But uh, like you said, he went over and, and hung out with old Tom. I don't think a lot of people knew that about him. I didn't know that about him before I did a little bit more research. Uh, and then didn't design design his first golf course uh, until the age of 34. And that was the uh, the Shawnee on the Delaware course there in Pennsylvania. Uh, but you mentioned that he was a good player and he got started in the design business in his 30s. It wasn't his only interests and he did some other things on the side. Uh, what else was he doing? Yeah. Well, absolutely, Al. Something near and dear to you and me. He was a journalist. <laughs> he, he had a nationally syndicated column, a newspaper column before World War I, and contributed ideas about courses and architecture to Golf Illustrated magazine back in the day, in the teens, and even became its editor in 1933. He published rankings of the top 12 professionals, male amateurs, female amateurs, and uh, he scored quite a coup in 1916 when he named 14-year-old Bobby Jones as the year's 12th ranked amateur. So he not only was a talented guy himself, but he had an eye for talent too. So here he was making a good amount of money as a writer and a golf course designer in the Roaring Twenties. From what I understand, he was a, a bit of a sociolite. Uh, I heard, saw one video where someone had said for every $5 he made, he spent 10 So he wasn't shy about flashing his wealth and spending his money having himself a, a good time. That would ultimately come to uh, to cost him a bit once 
the Great Depression rolled around. So how did that change things? Yeah, I mean, like like many in the day, celebrating the good fortune of the 1920s as life in the United States steamed along with a roaring economy. Um, he he had a prodigious thirst, <laughs> which he liked to quench with alcohol. And he did. He, he loved having a good time. Um, he invested uh, quite a bit of money in Broadway shows. Uh, most of them inevitably flopped, failed, and lost his money. And then when the stock market crashed and the Great Depression hit, he lost the majority of his life savings. So he was uh, struggling, struggling all of a sudden, again, like many formerly wealthy Americans were. And uh, he needed to figure out a way to make any kind of income. And so, um, you know, one of his great courses, we'll, uh, we'll discuss this, was Ridgewood Country Club in New Jersey, site of this year's U.S. Amateur coming up. And um, he had worked with the head professional there when he designed their course, a guy named George Jacobus, who by then was president, the national president of the PGA of America. And um, A.W. and George hatched a plan where George would send Tillinghast across the country and Tilly would uh, consult at any club that wanted his services, provided that club had a PGA professional. And it was free. Basically, it was a way for the PGA of America to say to their PGA people out in the field, stick with us. We know times are tough and, and we need your dues. So tell you what, as part of the deal for you sticking with us, we're going to give you a great architect for free and let him tell you how you can in either improve your course or help save some money with how you're currently maintaining it. So Al, when you mentioned that Tillinghast was at least partly responsible for 265 courses, I mean, a gigantic proportion of those 265 courses were his visits into the field. And I mean, far afield. You know, I have notes and correspondence from a site visit he did to El Rio Golf Course in Tucson around 1936, where, again, I mean, think of what a car journey must be in 1936 in the deserts of Arizona. And, you know, what had been a country club eventually would be a muni. But there was the great Tillingash showing up and saying, you, you know what, uh, you don't really need this bunker uh, uh, this second bunker in the left side of the fairway landing area. Why don't you take that out? And you pointed out earlier, it was ironic for a guy that was so brilliant in his bunkering placement scheme strategy that um, he would be advocating, take this bunker out sometimes even on his own designs. And we, yeah, we had a, a, a discussion about all of this and, a lot of the work that was being done by Tillinghast as he went across the country with the PGA of America was eliminating things, a uh, term called Duffer's headaches that he was using, uh, hazards that would only be a detriment to someone who isn't a very good golfer. So a lot of fairway bunkers, 
things that people would find themselves in only if they hit really poor shots. But as you said, we're amid the the effects of the Great Depression. Clubs don't really have money to bring in Tillinghast to build build new things or add new features. It's more so about what can we do to save on costs, maybe save, uh, maybe make the experience more enjoyable for the membership or whoever's playing there and have such a, a great name like Tillinghast. Maybe it wasn't at the time. So as illustrious as it sounds today, but still a, a well-known architect and, and artist and, and the support of the PGA of America, I'm sure was important to having these clubs carry on through tough times. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty much it. Not everybody where anyone across the country would necessarily have heard of Tillinghast. Um, he only worked briefly in the West, a uh, couple of different golf courses west of the Mississippi. He did do work in Texas and Oklahoma, but only one major course uh, that is remembered in California, which was, of course, the great San Francisco Golf Club. But most everybody connected with golf would have heard of some of his design. Yeah, By the 1930s, uh, you know, that's that's what he was doing. Um, he was uh, kind of a caravan really across the country and doing the advising and really in the, by the late 1930s, that even that run was over. He relocated to Southern California uh, where he opened up an antique shop in Beverly Hills. I mean, why not go where the money is? But um, yep, by 1941, heart disease and other medical issues had taken their toll, and uh, he, uh, in 1941, moved back to Toledo, Ohio, to be with his his oldest daughter, and he passed away there <clears throat> in 1942. And after that, we didn't hear much. I mean, architecture kind of entered a different phase. Finally, by the 1950s or so, we were familiar with one name, Robert Trent Jones give your course a signature. And he was the man called into uh, tweak US Open courses. Eventually he had a main competitor named Dick Wilson, but basically nobody really expressed an interest in who the architect of their golf course was, it, unless the name was Trent Jones. In 1974, Frank Hannigan, who worked for the USGA, was doing some research on the championship courses that would host USGA events in 1974 and happened to notice that four of them were designed by someone named A.W. Tillinghast. And that included the 1974 U.S. Open at Wingfoot and the 1974 U.S. Amateur Ridgewood in New Jersey, where the U.S. Amateur is returning this year. So Hannigan did some terrific research on A.W. Tillinghast, kind of rolled out his life story as best as he could find it. And it was incredibly well received. It ran in the publication that went out to all USGA people, Golf Journal. And um, it really kick-started a renewed interest 
in architecture among golf fans and golf course fans. And now everybody was curious, well, who designed our golf course? And it became kind of a, a symbol, a badge, if you will, if you had Tillinghast or a Donald Ross or someone of great repute who did design or you know, redesign your golf course. So for all of us at Lynx, we're pretty grateful that, um, you know, it's one of our favorite topics. And that 1974 article for the USGA by Frank Hannigan on A.W. Tillinghast kind of rekindled and kick-started all the same the interest in golf course design. It's an absolutely essential marketing play nowadays to, if you can unearth one of these architects that has made some sort of contribution to your club, then like you said, it's a badge of honor. Uh, it's also a, a way to get people on the first tee because they want to go play a course designed by one of their favorite architects or one of the, these classic guys. You want to play a Tillinghast. You want to play a McKenzie if you can, just to say that you have. So yeah, it's very interesting that it all kind of stemmed from that one place. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I think now is a good time to to transition now that we've kind of gotten his backstory and and how we associate him with some of the the best courses in the country, some very high profile names and a lot of names that people have heard, like Winged Foot, like Baltus Rawl, and Beth Page are all Tillinghast designs. Joe, what are some of the best courses that you can attribute to Tillinghast? You know, you certainly have those first three, and we've mentioned a couple of others. Where where do you put, what do you put at the top of your list? Well, I think everyone can agree that uh, golf course rankings are subjective. <laughs> um, and, and some may disagree with a few of these, but um, on this one, I don't think there's any question that his ultimate masterpiece is Wingfoot in Westchester County, the uh, suburbs of New York City. Uh, what a rich concentration of fantastic golf courses there. And, and Tilly was responsible for a number of them, but the two courses he designed at Wingfoot, um, I, I think stand, stand alone. The West course specifically, has hosted a bunch of U.S. Opens, a, uh, including most recently in 2020, when Bryson DeChambeau, uh, uh, like, dominated like no one else in history ever had. Uh, but, you know, you remember that famous edict that the club founders gave him? They said, build us a man-sized course. May not be politically correct these days, but we knew what they meant. I mean, they wanted the strongest tests of golf possible. I mean, not everybody wants that in their country club experience. 
but that's what they did. And he gave two fantastic, wonderful tests of golf with long par fours, very deep bunkers. And most significantly, we'll get into the individual characteristics, but his greens were propped up, brilliantly contoured um, to the point of uh, freakishly brilliant. Some of the little rolls and folds in these greens, you just can't believe someone dreamed them up. But he did. And of course, Wingfoot benefited from so much history happening at those golf courses, more specifically the West course, but it was practically a coin flip on which course they would host the 1929 US Open at. And I think for logistics with all the holes being on one side of the road of the clubhouse, uh, they went with the West. And uh, Bobby Jones famously had a sink at 12 footer on the last green, a pretty brutal putt, but I might add. And he did, got into the playoff and, and won the 36-hole playoff to win that U.S. Open. But the East course was held in near equal regard, still is, especially in terms of the quality of the greens. Wingfoot, I think, uh, offers the West, which is the overall test, just a stronger test of the long game. The East course is fantastic in its own right for its variety. Um, I think the members would tell you they prefer the East a little bit just because there is a little more variety going on, a couple of water hazards that the West doesn't have. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that's where Tillinghast greatness can be seen uh, first and foremost on the greens because Wingfoot isn't a, a terrifically rolling, undulating piece of property. It's got just enough contour to make it interesting for the stances and lies. And to make up for that, he created a set of greens uh, that will challenge the absolute best player all day long, but allow a lesser player who just happens to have short game skill and imagination to it, at least play a good game. By that token that you had mentioned earlier as well, I think it's kind of interesting that the way that history plays into the prestige of the place, you know, obviously an incredible design an incredible two punch one two punch of the east and west there but you and i stepped up to the 18th tee on the west course and and you told me you thought to yourself we did a piece on the the biggest u.s open meltdowns two of them were, were right here on this tee happened to be in the same year uh with colin montgomery and phil mickelson but that i think certainly carries some weight in people's minds uh, when you think about how history ties into, um, you know, ultimately saying that, that this is one it of the absolutely, best courses. When you have history that takes place at, at a given golf course, it absolutely adds to the pleasure of a round, to knowing you are walking in famous footsteps that you can appreciate. You can't run out and play a softball game in Yankee Stadium or throw a touchdown pass, you know, pick your favorite college or pro football stadium. But you can play on the same turf that these heroic golf events took place at, follow in those same footsteps. Now, you didn't really have anything to complain about when you played 18, since you blasted two fantastic shots right under the green. I missed a couple, 
And I had the occasion to say, just as Phil Mickelson did, I'm such an idiot. That's what he had to say, unfortunately, in 2006 when he was blowing the U.S. Open there. But um, no, I, I recovered sufficiently with my third and almost ran in a long par putt. But I'll remember that. And I was remembering that history even as we were playing those famous holes. Well, I'll say you'll, you're kindly misremembering my route to the green there. I did actually hit my, my second shot a little bit short and had a uphill about 60 yarder to get on. Uh, it, that would have been quite a drive on the Mickelson line and without <laughs> clipping any trees, but I uh, did, I had a, a pitch shot to break 80 out there. So it, it was a good day overall. Nonetheless, that's not not germane to this conversation at all. But I don't know if you want to go and continue. Maybe we can talk about Ridgewood, or I, I do want to also talk about some of these, like the greens at Wingfoot, or the as unique as they come, the most challenging I've played on because of so many subtleties, but also big sweeping undulations too some of those other design style, you know, key key design quirks or features from Tillinghast. When you talk about greens, you talk about bunkering, what what else is attributed to his unique style? Well, first of all, this actually brings up a fantastic point about restoration. And I say that because for years, people would associate A.W. Tillinghast with quote, pear-shaped greens. So think of a pear and the narrow part coming down front and then getting wide out to the sides because that's what Wingfoot's greens looked like for a long time because you had really deep bunkers at positioned at four o'clock and eight o'clock. Very seldom bunkering the very front of the green, but front left, front right. And so you had a pear shape in the greens, especially at Wingfoot. And then we came to find out that's not true. That's not true. Because of maintenance practices and years of not knowing the truth, the greens had become pear-shaped. But in reality, when you have a great restoration artist, such as Wingfoot hired in Gil Hans, there have been other modifications over the years by very talented architects. But Hans was one that sold the club on a vision of saying, you had one of the most brilliant set of greens in history. Let's take them back to how Tillinghast designed them. Wingfoot agreed. Hans first put back the East greens back in about 2016, finish up the West in around 2018. And that's when you get to what you just mentioned, the Tillinghast design style and some of the individual characteristics that he became known for, they weren't pear-shaped greens. Wingfoot's greens in particular had to be strong and had these amazing contours, these rolls, the folds, little edges on both the left and right sides of the greens, occasionally small false fronts that gave the illusion that you were going to hit the green and stay on it, and instead it would roll back towards you. And even in the back of the green, there was something interesting going on in almost all of them. So there was the idea that you could place a hole location 
that far back and tempt you and you'd have an uphill putt, but you still had a lot of work to do on it. And if you got too bold and challenged it, you go over the green uh, and have a virtually impossible, you know, comeback chip. So point being is we've now been able to see a lot of restoration that's given us the true tilling gas uh, look and, uh, and, and playing value. So, you know, beyond that, um, that's what the first thing I would get at is tilling gas could not be pigeonholed the way Rayner and McDonald had their template holes. Tilly had a few common characteristics uh, and, and we'll get into those shortly, but really what he was all about was variety. He had different bunker styles and even different green styles all over the country, depending on where he was designing and what the terrain gave him, depending on what the club wanted out of their golf course. So I think the fact that his individual holes were so unique from one another, his individual courses for the most part were unique. Even Balta's Rolls courses, not too far away from Wingfoot, and Ridgewood's three nines had differences that you could spot between one and the next and the next. So credit Tilly for that, as opposed to say, there was a certain style that some of the older architects embraced and stuck with it. So that's where I'd start with Tilling asked. Beyond the fact that there was so much variety, which is a great thing, what are some of those common things that did show up, that do show up on several of his designs? They're not all the same, but the idea uh, of a certain design feature like the Sahara bunker at Baltus Roll. Right. Um, what some would call the Sahara bunker, rightly so. Uh, the whole concept, I think, is called the Great Hazard. And it's something he wrote about. Again, he was a prolific writer. Uh, didn't always do as much as we would have liked to see on the pure specifics of design, but he did enough. And, and that was really uh, the scale is what he was emphasizing there, where it was a big golf hole or a big piece of property. And generally, uh, this often occurred on par fives. He liked to design the Sahara, the great hazard. And we saw this on the 17th hole, par five at Baltus Roll Lower. Uh, we saw this at Baltimore Country Club on the, another par five on the 14th. Uh, saw it quite a number of places. Um, actually, uh, even uh, a, a form of it at Bethpage Black. And we'll get into the controversy about uh, architecture at Bethpage Black, but um, uh, Philadelphia Cricket Club had a, a similar concept. So that was one thing he liked to do. He was definitely into his par fives. Uh, he enjoyed having a double dog leg on many of them that often incorporated the, uh, uh, the great hazard concept. Um, not always, but sometimes the two were paired. Um, he was also fond of something that uh, he referred to as the Tiny Tim. And we're very grateful for that. Wasn't the Tiny Tim that uh, strange entertainer of the 1960s, but it was really the equivalent of a short hole, of a true short par three, something in the neighborhood of under 150 yards. And uh, he loved those. 
you know, which was a real treat because he was a terrific player, but felt those were a, uh, those kinds of holes were great equalizers. There were others in his repertoire as well, but just didn't practice them as much. Um, one is called a, a reef hole. And he described that uh, conceptually uh, with the way the bunkers were configured uh, in a staggered fashion that made it look like a reef compared to protecting the green. Um, we see one example in a newly revitalized club uh, close to New York City called Paramount uh, that he did uh, later in his career. Uh, it was changed names and now it's back to Paramount. And he did that as a private course for Paramount's head, studio head, Adolf Zucker. So you can spot a, lo a lot of these things. They aren't quite templates, but, um, you know, more realistically, that those were his little design signature items, but he was so much about variety. And as much as he liked those par threes, as much as he favored good testing par fours, because he was a really good competitive player himself, it was the greens themselves, the par threes where he felt he could distinguish himself, that every par three had to have its own unique character and that every single green that he designed, not easy to do, had to have great individual character on its own. Like we mentioned earlier, there are lots of those, too, to account for some 265. A lot of the great Tillinghast courses, uh, or just a lot of the ones he designed in general, are spanning all over the country you talked about from san francisco golf club to i know there's close to me there's a nine nine holes at rock hill country club near charlotte uh that can attribute tilling has to, to the design but like i said a lot a lot of these are private that we've listed but there are a few that are public that anyone can go out and play starting first and foremost with beth page uh, the black course. I think it's time to get into that. Uh, you alluded to it earlier, uh, the unique and interesting, different nature of, of Beth Page Black. Well, Beth Page Black, without question, is the greatest public access golf course that that A.W. Tillinghast designed, that if you want a taste of Tillinghast, um, for the everyman, there it is. And it may well be the hardest golf course he ever designed. However, there was some controversy that came up ahead of the 2002 U.S. Open, I believe. Could well have been the 2009 U.S. Open, where some golf course scholars, architecture scholars, proposed something different. That the bulk of the course was actually designed by a man named Joseph Purbeck, who uh, worked for the New York State Parks Commission at the time, and that Tilly, even in the era, was quick to acknowledge that Purbeck deserved the credit for design. Now, there was a great hue and cry <laughs> against that notion because most of us wanted to believe, no, this is Tilly's public masterpiece. Look at all the Tilly characteristics, many that were restored by Reese Jones. They had gotten it back into shape and, and all of that. 
And, um, and so today, maybe 15 years, maybe 20 years later, the pendulum has swung back a little bit. There was more evidence unearthed that maybe Tillinghast was just kind of being a good soldier and giving credit to the guy that was there most days in the field and maybe that had some good ideas about what needed to be done. Partly the reason that the black course wound up so difficult is because there were three other courses there, including one he designed himself, which is great, the red course. And so let's design a real championship course. We've got these others that are really playable by all. Let's build us a man-sized course for the public. And boy, oh boy, to this day, the black course is one of the most difficult championship courses in the country. The bunkering kind of stands by itself as some of the fiercest bunkering that Tillinghast ever did. It is really severe on some holes, but the strategies involved just shout Tillinghast. What's a little different is that the greens themselves are kind of ordinary. Again, one could argue you didn't need really difficult, sophisticated greens when you already had so much trouble getting to the green. The property is rolling and pretty hilly and so much fairway bunker sand and difficult green side sand. So maybe he eased up on the putting surfaces themselves. So in any case, we're gonna still tip our caps that the best you can find for Joe Public is Beth Page Black if you wanna play Tillinghast. Yeah, and the notoriously tight fairways too is what I always think about with Beth Page. Uh, everything leading up to the green is so tough. So like you said, why why not maybe dial it back a, a touch on the greens because you had you had to really play golf your ball out there to to get to them anyways. I think some of the other good ones that people may recognize that you are able to play uh, Omni Bedford Springs in Pennsylvania has some attribution to Tillinghass. Correct. On that and old I, course. And it's it's a really neat old course. Um, there are four Tillinghass holes left, if you will. The great restoration artist, Ron Force, came back in there. And what happened was that was an 1895 design, and Tilly came in in 1912, redesigned that. But subsequent to that... Um, Donald Ross came in. And so today, pretty much 11 of the holes are more closely associated with Ross. But four tilling assholes, including a wonderful little downhill par three, the 14th hole. So if you do get out to that part of Pennsylvania, remember the Omni Bedford Springs, little 14th hole par three, a great example of tilling ass Tiny Tim. There's also, like you mentioned, the red course at Beth Page. Uh, Tilling has first design Shawnee Inn and Golf Resort in Pennsylvania in the Poconos. Uh, and from what I understand, he also did a par three course there as well. So you've got a lot of Tillinghast uh, if you want to head that direction. Seems like Pennsylvania is a good option, Joe, uh, to knock some stuff off the list here. Yep, he also uh, was fairly prolific in Texas, and um, he did a private course that held the 
Texas Open for years called uh, Oak Hills uh, with an S. Uh, site of the PGA Tours uh, San Antonio Open for many years, but also did a public course called Brackenridge Park, which got some notoriety in the 1950s when uh, it was had like no grass on it, and they played the Texas Open in, uh, in the late 50s there, and um, Mike Suchak set the all-time tour record for low score for low 72 holes. Eventually, they got grass back on it, and there's been a nice restoration attempt done. They couldn't restore everything there, but uh, I remember John Colligan, Troy Kemp, those guys did what they could to put back as many tilling ass features as he had put in in 1915. And um, Al, I got to throw in one more, um, because some of the tilling gas that's public was lost forever. There aren't many tilling ass characteristics left. But um, a new one that reopened last year is really intriguing. It's called Belmont. And that's in uh, Virginia, not too far from, well, right, actually right in Richmond. So Belmont had been known as a Hermitage when it hosted the 1949 PGA Championship that Sam Sneed won. Eventually it fell on hard times in the 1970s. The city took it over. And then it fell on really hard times and almost closed about three years ago. But a redevelopment plan took place with our friend Davis Love and his firm Love Golf Course Design. And what they proposed to do to save it, if you will, was to take the 18-hole course, and I know this hurts you purists, but I think it was for the greater good. They retained 12 of the 18 tilling assholes. That's all that's left is 12. But they put back as many tilly characteristics as they could. And what they did with the other piece of ground, abandoning the other six holes, was they built a par three course that featured tilling gas greatest par threes, which is a really fun concept. If you want to go study tilling gas, and go to this golf course, play 12 holes, big holes that were tilly, partially to mostly restored. Then go play this par three course that has all these fun tilly par threes. You can see what he was all about. They also expanded the practice facilities and so forth. So, you know what? Rather than closing the whole course down, credit the city of Richmond, uh, the town fathers at this point, who got together, Davis Love's firm with his brother Mark and, um, and Scott Sherman and said, let's make this work and let's make it an homage to Tillinghast. And of course, we know Davis has a soft spot for A.W. Tillinghast winning the PGA Championship in front of the rainbow at Wingfoot. Absolutely. Yeah, I'd forgotten about this and I've heard a lot of good things about Belmont there in Richmond. So worth checking out for your public Tillinghast flavor. Last, I think we should just go back. We didn't talk a ton about Ridgewood, but what to see and what to know heading into that U.S. Amateur here in a couple weeks. Yeah, that's going to be fun. Um, you know, Ridgewood, if it wasn't stuck in the Met Association, you know, with so many great courses, uh, so much history, I mean, it would be better known than it is. Um, the other thing that's interesting about Ridgewood and how great is its golf? Well, it's a blessing because it has 27 holes and all 27 are terrific. 
again, another one that, um, that Gil Hans has uh, worked on for a long time. But that's the drawback, too, is that they use a composite course for championships. They take holes from the east course, the center course, and the west course. From the 27, make them into 18. Partly it's for um, logistics. Again, easy walking, gallery flow, that sort of thing. Partly it's the quality of the holes. They're just great golf holes from each of the three nines. And so why not incorporate them uh, into the championship test? And the PGA Tour has gone there several times over the last 10, 15 years uh, in the FedEx, the Barclays, it was called. Um, or the Northern Trust and uh, and play there. And the guys love it. You know, it is old-fashioned classic golf. The bunkering isn't as severe as it is at Wingfoot. Not quite as deep, not as elaborately shaped. The greens, again, are really, really good. you got to be able to wheel the flat stick. They're just not as precisely awesome, <laughs> meaning there's a little folds and rolls that Wingfoot has and again, they were needed at Wingfoot because the terrain just didn't offer as much variety and interest and so forth. So not as hard a golf course as Wingfoot is, but a terrific, attractive test in its own right with great history and a fabulous clubhouse designed by the same guy that did Wingfoot's clubhouse. So we're in for a treat when we tune in or even attend the U.S. Amateur that's starting on August 15th. Ridgewood is, uh, it really is, should be part of uh, golf royalty. And like you said, just to, to specify for the championship, they're doing holes one through seven of the East nine, holes two through six of the center nine, holes four through nine of the West nine. So they're taking holes from all three of the nines that make up the 27 there at Ridgewood. That will be a lot of fun to watch. I'm looking forward to it. Now that I'm armed with all this Tillinghast knowledge, it's going to make it even more enjoyable for me to, to watch the U.S. Amateur this year. Thanks, Joe, for imparting what you had on Tillinghast in this episode. I really appreciate it. Al, it's great to be with you as always, especially when we're talking about such a legendary figure in architecture as Albert Warren Tillinghast. I'll see you at Belmont. Sounds good to me.